Welcome to the Building Resilience Podcast, a show where we explore the world of sport and deconstruct the tools and ethos of world-class athletes to help us create growth and optimize business and life. I'm Noel Olnert, the Chief Sales and Strategy Officer at Securo, and today I'll be talking to former professional rugby union player Matt Dunning. We'll discuss his pathway to success and his persevering attitude that's seen him shine through the hard times and drive significant life changes. Building Resilience Podcast. Matt Dunning, welcome to the Business Resilience Podcast. It's great to have you on the show. How are you doing? Well, Noel, thanks for having me on. Can't complain. Um, uh, lockdown in Sydney's come to almost an end. We're, we're, we're pretty much there, so life's back to normal as we are these days. So it's it's good to be out and about. Um, going to too many lunches. Uh, everyone wants to, to meet and go out at the moment and uh, it's good to be you know getting back out there and seeing people and connecting because it was uh, was tough in Australia and Sydney in particular for where I am uh, with lockdown. Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely starting to feel like it's coming back to life now. Uh, walking around the city, they're starting to get a good buzz and uh, like you say, there's a there's a whole host of people ready to go for lunches but I didn't know there was such a thing as, uh, as too many lunches so you got you got to manage them, right? And otherwise, uh, that's where you uh, you spend half your time. Well, my, my waistline will disagree with too many lunches and so will my wife but um yeah, we, I've, I've had a, I've had a couple of days where I've had eleven thirty and one thirty lunches. You have two lunches in one day. That, that's when you start getting yourself in trouble. <laughs> Sounds like your lifestyle choice to me. It is, yeah. So, Matt, the Business Resilience Podcast—it's all around understanding where elite sports people have come from and how they've built resilience into their life, and ultimately what's made them into world-class athletes. And looking to see how that can be transpired into the world of business, and to give advice to aspiring business owners, entrepreneurs, and people working for organisations organizations where they're looking to strive more i'll kick off with a couple of questions for you matt obviously you've had the rise into to playing for the wallabies um 45 caps for the wallabies congratulations that's no mean feat um could you tell me how you got there i'd love to hear what a young matt dunning had that uh, that separated him from the pack oh look i think um you know i was lucky my dad was a was was loved rugby and i was one of those kids who uh you know, just dad's football, son's football, dad's politics, you know, son's politics. So I just, you know, I was that kind of kid and actually born in Calgary, Alberta, uh, which is quite weird. But mum and dad, no no, no Canadian uh, backgrounds or relatives. They just went over for a six-month holiday during the Montreal Olympics in 76 and stayed for eight years. Um, so as I say to people, if I had have uh, been born in Japan, I just would have been a sumo wrestler um, rather than a rugby player. I wouldn't have looked any different though. So... Um, Dad was rugby mad, played for Eastwood, and we came back to Australia when I was five and wasn't allowed to play rugby till I was was 12 because um, mum, mum was worried that uh, we'd get injured, I thought, but I think it had more to do with the travel commitments of the rugby club compared to the local soccer club. So I played I played soccer and was thrown. was the first full-time under-six goalie, wouldn't go anywhere else because I filled up the goals being the biggest kid in the team. Wits way anyway, not height. And then always wanted to play rugby and um, always wanted to do it, loved it. I guess I was lucky that, um, you know, I was born with a body shape with no neck and, you know, I look at food and put on weights so, and I look at weights and put on weights. So you, you, you naturally... Uh, pushed into the front row if that's your, your physique and I think um, I really always always um, like scrummaging and so you know playing in the front row was great and I just uh, had really good coaches when I was going through it um, 
I was very lucky with the, the teams I played with that had other good players around. So you learn, you know, I played with a lot of kids that I ended up playing professionally with, in, 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 you know, when I, was, when I was older. It's amazing how many, I've heard stories of how many good athletes, you know, gymnasts come from the same street and the same coach, you know. It, it, iron sharpens iron, as they say. So growing up around other good rugby players and good coaches is, was really important. And then um, Eastwood was my club in Sydney. Uh, you know, I got to uh, play first grade in 98 and then you sort of on the road to play with the Waratahs and I played all the, the, the Australian 21s and all that junior programs. And, um, you know, played with the Waratahs in 2001 and had two seasons there and um, didn't get through to the sort of the Wallabies until 2003. And um, I was selected the World Cup squad. Um, hadn't played a test, but I was in the, I'd been in the squad for the Tri-Nations and... Um, yeah, it was it was it was awesome, you know. I'd, I'd gone from you know watching guys on TV to playing with them, you know, and just like George Gregan and uh, Matt Burks, Chris Latham, Wendell Sailors, Matt Rogers. I like watching League Two with Lottie Takiris, you know. Um, um, there were so many great players, and then you know it was just an unbelievable chance to play in that World Cup and to play in a World Cup on your home soil. Nothing greater, and then you know my second Test match was the World Cup final. You know, and and really, let's let's be honest. My first Test match was against Namibia, and we won one hundred and forty forty two nil. So really, my first Test match was a World Cup final. Um, I came off the bench, uh, didn't play long, but it was still an incredible, uh, incredible place to sort of get into it. And um, yeah, that's sort of in summary, without going into too much detail, that's sort of how my road led to the World Cup in two thousand three. Excellent, and uh, thanks very much for that uh, that overview. What a great story, and it just shows as well the the importance of having that community around you as you look into build up a career and having good uh, good professionals around you and people that can that can guide you and as well as working alongside some of your mates, which is key. So talk me through, Matt, the mindset of walking onto that field in the Rugby World Cup 2003, putting on the green and goals, walking down the tunnel. Love to hear more about that. Yeah, look, as I said, it was my second test match, the World Cup uh, final. Um, and before that, Nabibia was like, you know, 142 nil. So it was like, it was a bit surreal. Um, and I was very new to test football. And um, obviously, uh, I learned a lot going on from that but like there's that the feeling was undescribable obviously you know woke up I woke up final in your in your home state um 80,000 people uh, as many white shirts in the crowd as as, as as yellow shirts it seemed like it was just huge and in a world cup in a world cup I think it's the only time you walk out together I might be wrong but in the world cup you walk out both sides at the same time um, you're standing opposite. Um, I would have been standing uh, opposite uh, Jason Leonard. Obviously, we're both in the bench for the World Cup final, and you know it was probably his 115th test or 100 whatever, and my second test. So um, you know it, it was it, you know and Jason and Jason Leonard played in the 91 World Cup final. So yeah, for me, he was a, a, a legend. Um, and uh, since I've known him more and more, he's, he's, he's a legend, especially what he can do after hours. Jace the fun bus. He's an incredible, incredible bloke. <laughs> anyway. Um, yeah, it was like it's huge. The crowd, the noise, everything was 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 deafening. Um, being on the bench for a World Cup final, I warmed up. I probably warmed up too hard. I remember feeling cramps in my calves from warming up a little bit too hard and a little bit too over the top. You couldn't help but, you know, do it when you're running warming up behind the post to run full speed with a, with a crowd and an atmosphere like that. And you know, although we lost that game in probably one of the most 
the tightest World Cup finals. Uh, well, our 95 arguments, but one of the, if not the tightest World Cup final, it will be up there. And, you know, it was a great game, great spectacle. Uh, England were favourites. Um, we'd knocked New Zealand out the week before. So it was, it was always going to be a great clash on our home soil. And, you know, unfortunately, we just weren't good enough. You know, it was, it was a really close game and could have gone either way in the end. Um, you know, they'd, um, I remember, uh, uh, you know, a few different things happening in the match that definitely could have gone in our favour, but uh, England deserved to win. Yeah, I remember watching that game uh, when I was at university back in the UK and, and cheering on. Um, it was a, it was an epic game and one that all uh, all sides remember. You mentioned there's something interesting around warming up a bit too hard and kind of getting getting excited about the event, right? Which is obviously natural in such a huge event on your home turf. But talk to me about some of the setbacks and obstacles that you've had on the on the journey towards uh, being an elite rugby player. Oh, I mean, I think I think anyone who doesn't you know hasn't had setbacks and obstacles either is a complete freak of nature or is lying. And I wasn't a complete freak of nature when it came to playing football. Anyway, some people think some other things I did was quite weird. But um, yeah, a lot of obstacles. Um, obviously, there's always non-selection. There's always injury, um, and then obviously the big one is self-doubt and your own head. Um, and non-performance as well, because you know it, it's a, it's a weird and people I guess people don't see that inside. It, it's it's you know although you're paid in on contract, I don't know many players who play at the peak. It's not about performing well in the jersey and being selected and doing the best they can do. Um, you know, it, it's like you get hired and fired in a week if you don't get selected. Um, you know, when you do when you play at top level sport. It's not just about going to training and being in a team and getting paid a paycheck. It's it's it's. If anyone's about that, I don't think they're 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 at the top of the game. I don't think you can be. You know, the contract and getting a job is just that's great. But once that's signed and done, it's it's all about performing to the best of your ability and going as far as you can. So, you know, if you play poorly or you let you make a mistake, you play down, uh, you play badly, the team down, it 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 weighs on your mind heavily. Um, injuries um, can have the same sort of um, toll on a player. Um, huge. And some of the, some of my my experience, I guess, you're sort of asking is that a good a good example of tying that all in was when we played we played the Barbarians in 2008 at Wembley after we played it was the last game on the tour and I was um, playing quite well. Thank goodness I was playing very well. And I'll tell you why it's important. I was playing quite well and I snapped my Achilles on Wembley. And obviously that's a massive setback uh, to snap your Achilles at, you know, at late, you know, I was, I was, I was almost 30, I was, I was 30 in a week. Um, so, you know, snapping your Achilles, you know, fully ruptured the hole in the side on a terrible pitch that the grass hasn't been put in properly because they had like a motorbike show on the week before. So, yeah, you're angry about that. I said before the game, the field wasn't fit and then you go and snap your Achilles in a scrum, um, on the same scrum, Scopa Kepu tears his pec. So we're both out for like, I'm out for five, six months. He's out for three or four months. Um, anyway, you know, the silver lining of that snapped Achilles that I was playing well. So in my whole recovery, in all getting back from that snapped Achilles, my last performance was of a good standard. And when I mean playing well, I mean, you know, people might notice it, but me personally, it was up there in the top three or four games I'd played for the country. Um, so that's that's a big deal, and that's that's 
you can imagine if I was playing, I hadn't played well, or we'd lost, and then you have that injury. That that, that can sort of spiral sporting people, I think, and they can it can really make it hard. Um, so to have that resilience to get back from that is really important. There's there's reason why talented athletes don't go and go on with it. It's because they don't want to deal with that. They don't want to deal with feeling like shit when they play bad or or going through that that pain. You know, talent. You know that that's the hardest thing. Like is that in some ways being born a a very chubby kid probably was one of the greatest things that built my my resilience and and, and made me ready for this because you know that was a lot harder turning up every day uh, when when I was swimming as a kid in speedos racing kids who had six packs and I had a keg you know like oh, I looked like a you know so that sort of stuff and the and the, the teasing you get sort of builds a bit of resilience so but um yeah and, and and I guess I've sort of sort of waffled a bit there but when I come back to it I sort of said at the start what I used to say before I played a game. It was was on that nature. It was all about uh, working hard, you know, getting off the line, being accurate in everything I did, no matter how tired I was, just getting the skill right, being accurate, working hard, getting off the line. That's more a defensive thing, but it was it's a bit of a mindset. And then the and the fourth thing was is is this, if this is my last game of, of, of rugby ever, if this is the last one I'm going to play. Um, I sure as shit want to make sure I've put in a good performance, and, and I don't mean good performance in making a drop ball or a thing, but an effort, an effort performance, and I gave my all and I did my best. Um, so that was really important to me, and it was just really highlighted when I snapped my Achilles how much easier it made it to come back from that injury, knowing that, that I'd done that, and um, because in previous injuries, uh, hadn't been playing as well or working as hard that old poem or whatever it is, man, the mirror, it couldn't be any truer. You know, a lot of people don't know what you go through, what you do, but you can't lie to yourself. So ultimately you've got to make sure that you're happy with the work and the effort and the performance you put in. Yeah. A common theme is around that self-awareness and understanding when you're lying to yourself, when you're being honest with yourself and how do you capitalize on that? And you mentioned there well around the hard work. Hard work really defines so much in, in elite sports and, and, and people rising to the top of business and organizations. We talk a lot about that perspiration over inspiration. And I, I think it can't be more true in, in so many aspects of life. Just digging a little bit deeper into uh, what you said there around getting in that mindset of if this was my last game of rugby, I want to make sure that you've left everything on the field. Talk me through the process that you've got around getting into that mindset. Is it a, something that you feel you were born with or did you have a methodology or a process to, to get you into that mindset, whether you're walking onto the field or whether you're getting to the physio for recovery? Yeah, look, it was definitely learned. Um, you know, there's so many things in my career that you, you define by being learned and you get better and you learn. I definitely, I had I had traits when I was younger, but I was a bit inconsistent. I think that's a common theme. Younger footballers are a bit more inconsistent. Um, they don't deal with injury and pain as well. Uh, often, not always, but that's was definitely my story. Um, like a, a good a good a good analogy of my story is when I was 21, I'd walk in for an X-ray on crutches or in my arm was a sling, and I'd and, I, and I'd walk out and I'd just say nothing wrong with you. Yet when I was 32, I'd, I'd walk in and say there's nothing wrong with me, and you get an X-ray and you'd walk out on the crutches or the sling. You know, it's sort of just your body can't cope, but your, your mind goes to another level, and that's just through training. I think it's through training and working with professional athletes and and just getting better and better you know it's you know the body ends up giving up generally a lot of players before the mind does because the mind becomes trained it becomes a massive tool and you know for me it was about getting that rhythm and routine really correct um, especially on game day during the week you know 
and to be critical of myself, I was really good. And, and, and when I say nine to five, it's more of a definition, not the time frame. But I was really good at the nine to five stuff. Um, really, really good when it, when it came to professional sport. But the the little one percent is the stuff that didn't build a sweat up. I probably wasn't as good at, like the the band work or the little ex, little bit of extra stretching you do on your own, just for your own well being. Um, hence the reason I probably didn't play past 33, 32. Um, but um, that rhythm and routine is really important, especially on game day. You want to get that rhythm and routine right so your head's in the right space and a consistent space all the time. Um, and look, it's funny you say that. Like when you played a test match, that was actually the easiest place to get right. Because the thing about playing a test match is, I always say this, not because I'm a front row, but it's the hardest, easiest football you ever play because you have the anthem before you on before you actually play the game. Like you don't need to worry about being ready to play after you hear your national anthem, you, you, you are there. If anything, you've just got to keep yourself calmer. Um, but you still want to have that rhythm and routine, uh, and that's what I really worked on through my career was like working on, you know, similar songs on the way to the bus, or even before that, the whole the whole game day, you know, eating at the same time, sleeping at the same time, little changes, stretching at the same time, going for a swim, going for a walk, whatever it was, wherever I was, I'd have that ready to go. So I had a really good rhythm and routine. Um, what I did when I got to the ground was very similar. The order I strapped my ankles, my fingers, um, which boot went on first. It wasn't about it, what, that, putting your boot on first wasn't, wasn't a, what they called a superstition. It was just a routine, a rhythm. And I, I called it a rhythm because I thought routine was a little bit, didn't describe it well because it's about being in the rhythm. So I would I would do that. I'd warm up. I'd always go out a little bit earlier than a lot of guys to warm up, uh, especially when I was older because I just needed a little bit more time before I could get into it. Uh, and I liked getting in the atmosphere and stretching out there rather than being in the sheds. And everyone was different, right? So some guys went out late and some guys, you know, uh, it, was, it was good. I just found out what worked for me and, and when I did that, it just made it so I had no excuses because my preparation was all about just putting in the effort and executing on the day. Yeah, that again, going back to that consistency, just so important, building out that rhythm, as you mentioned, and uh, you hear a lot, you are what you do consistently, and it is that uh, those repeatable actions um, that, that often define you, and then you've got those five percenters on the other side uh, that, can, uh, that can really supercharge things. Um, as well, but uh, making sure that you have that consistency in your performance is so important. Um, and thanks for sharing that. That's uh, that's some great insights for our for our listeners. Um, I'm going to pivot a little bit at the moment to talk about a bit more about yourself uh, on the field. Uh, so uh, it doesn't take too much of a of a search uh, on YouTube to to see some of your exciting times on the pitch. Couple of uh, couple of uh, windmills thrown and uh, some really interesting stories from there. Um, I'd love to hear more about what what drove uh, Matt Dunning on the on the rugby pitch. Um, what was it that that you when you said you're going to go out and give it that that all for if this was your your last ever Test match? Uh, what did that last ever Test match look like in your mind, and how did that get played out on the field? Yeah, look, it, it sort of changed over time, but I, you know when when it was at its best, it was it was about just 
being able to look at myself in the mirror that I'd given all I could and, and I'd played as well as I could. And, and look, sometimes I had games which were great, which I was a little bit critical of because I sort of, it just looked like, you know, sometimes things go your way and you look great and it goes well and, you, and you're playing against a lesser opponent. So everyone goes, how well did you go? Other times you're up against a much harder opponent and it looks like you're not going well, but from an actual effort and how you've put in, you, you've given all you can. And that's how I really judge myself with myself. Um, I think it's really important because at the end of the day, that's the controllable. Um, the controllable is, is 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 your effort and 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 how hard you work at being accurate at what you do. But I guess I guess also too, I, I love the physical combative nature of it. Um, and sometimes in my detriment, I've always had that switch where I just lose control and it, you know, and I've always had to watch that. Where you know, it's like all bets are off if someone does something, and and, it, and it's better to walk away from the fight. It's 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 better to get belted in the fight than walk away from it than having the than walking away from the fight. That sort of analogy. I've always had that. I've never backed down from. I don't think anyone. I probably have, but I, you know, innately, if that switch goes, I won't back down for anyone. And to my detriment on many occasions, but. I think sometimes that served me well that, you know, I think if uh, if you have any, you know, any sort of apprehension or any sort of worry in the position I played, you probably wouldn't have done it or you wouldn't have been as – I wouldn't have been as good at the way I played. Um, you know, I, 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 I was by no means a good fighter. I was no means the best at what I did, but I, I just I – just, I just tried to never back down and often – to a detriment. <laughs> no, it's all good, mate. You could have fooled me that you weren't a good fighter. It, uh, there's, uh, there's, some, there's some fairly handy fists being thrown. I know um, I used to be the guy who would uh, maybe with my mouth uh, start the fight, but very much be at the back of the uh, back of the queue when it came to uh, taking punches, that's for sure. Um, and it's interesting you talk there around kind of when things served you um, from a kind of having that um, aggression and, and not walking away from things and taking that head on being caught in a in a sport that's very much combat it served you well at the time but as we learned things don't always serve you so, so well in uh, in in later parts of life or, or maybe off the field um one of the things we talk around a lot around resiliency in business is how businesses adapt and and how how um, in sport we see many people who've been in elite sport whether it's through um, age or whether it's through injury um, we go into different things and uh, and since uh, since you finished your your professional rugby career you've been across podcasts you uh, now into business um, and we have a you can see there's You've also had a transformation uh, in your own body. You don't look, uh, you're looking more like a, a five-eighth these days than uh, the, than a front rower. So could you talk a bit about well, well, your, excuse me, could you talk a bit around your, uh, your, your current off-field uh, life and, um, and and how that transcends from your, from your very successful career? Yeah, I, I would have been a good five-eighth. I, was, I, was, yeah, I would have been the only five-eighth with a 100% drop goal record too, one for one. I yeah. <laughs> I yeah, gonna get, we're going to get on to that I, for sure. I, I thought I'd get my... Uh, get my retaliation in first of that one I could hear it coming um, oh look yeah I so I um, it's a really good question about retirement and it's difficult and people I think a lot of people don't understand why sporting people have problems with retirement and changing careers and they, and they don't get it um, and I don't think I got it straight away either. I actually thought when I retired, and I retired relatively early, 32, 33, with a shoulder and, and some other issues. My ankle was pretty much gone anyway. So, But my body sort of gave up on me and, and I knew that. Um, but 
they don't sort of understand. Like you, you play a professional sport, and especially you play for your country, you go from play from competing or performing in an environment where you're top zero zero one percent or whatever it is. Don't quote me on numbers. I'm, I throw them out willy nilly, but you know you're top of the tree. You just that's where you are. And so if you put any work in, you get those results. You get results. Like you, you work hard, you get results. You're the best. You know, generally things. You know, you get knocked, you get setbacks, but you're still top of the game. But then you go into a career after sport, and a lot of the time, a lot of the time, you're uh, you're ten or fifteen years behind the people you're working with. So you, you you're on the back foot already. Um, the reality is, you know, if you're top three percent of that new field, you, you're pretty. It's pretty amazing. But I, I don't know many people who go into life after sport who are top zero zero one percent. They might succeed very well and do it. So. It's sort of a setback. It's really bad for your your, your um for your self esteem and your and your ego to a certain extent that you you work hard and you don't get results and you can't, you're just not as good as other people who've been doing it for longer. So it's sort of like it becomes like a you know you, you generally play sports or do things you're good at, and so you're not good at this thing, but you have to do it to provide for your family and. It's very hard to find something out that you enjoyment, and enjoyment is not about money. Enjoyment's about success and and getting rewards of doing a good job. That's what I think most people are about. And I think money often is a big part of that, and that that's the yardstick often too much. But that's a different story. I think it's whatever the yardstick is you're using. It's about getting that getting those results and and feeling like you're you're adding value, whatever that is. And I think sometimes when you change new field, you feel out of your depth and you're behind and you're hopeless and you beat yourself up. And people don't realise this. A lot of professional sporting people have penthouse egos and outhouse uh, self-esteems, and people wouldn't realise that. Like it's, it, and uh, and a lot of people have that in sport, and because you because all you see is the, is is the penthouse ego. You don't, you know that that self-esteem often you don't see unless you know what to look for, and I and I and I have to look for because I've had to battle with that, and a lot of people, in, I think, life battle with that. So you get to sort of you know what to look for, but. And you see a lot of that bravado and ego, and you see that as as issues with self esteem, and so it's it's really hard, you know, and um, you know, and a lot of it's the expectations you put on yourself, and and what you expect to do, and what you should do, and where I should be, and you know, I've earned this money, I should be here, I should be here. Should's the worst word in the English dictionary, you know. It should it doesn't mean anything, you know. So I think it's uh, it's really difficult, and I struggled with the transition early, um, but I was lucky that I um sort of had people around who helped me sort of make the transition. I, you know, I went from a business development career that was uh, pretty much going to lunches and, uh, and drinking beer. And um, so I went from, you know, 125, pretty fit for me, <laughs> playing weight to 130-odd, totally unfit, overweight, you know, really looking like a heart attack around the corner and went through a few life, you know, life issues like everyone does and lost a lot of weight very fast, lost 41 kilos in eight months and the part the part of the diet was that I was not going to give up alcohol I wasn't going to train and then I started training about three months into the process or a bit less and then I um you know got off the grog a little bit into that too and um and now you know I don't drink anymore it's crazy so but um uh, people often make the joke that I'm the first professional athlete to get fit, lose weight, and give up the piss after they retired. So, um, um, so yeah, I've, I've sort of done things in reverse. But um, yeah, look, it, it was my way of sort of dealing with that transition, and it's helped me now because you know I've moved on to a different career that that doesn't involve as heavily as well, definitely that kind of business development. It's still obviously very much business development focused, but I'm in a bit more of a, I guess, an analytical. Um, 
uh, strategic role, which is around um, uh, representing occupiers uh, with their property. Um, and I specialise in industrial property, my clients, and uh, just love it. And it's just, uh, you know, I really found something I like and um, I don't have to be the best at it. I should do the best for my clients and I love it. And, yeah, day to day, I'm very happy with that. It's a great story um, from going in from where you were. And like you said, it, uh, I love the, the vulnerability and the, and the honesty there around. Um, it's not always easy. It is difficult in order to, uh, in order to, to bounce back and change careers and, and adapt. Um, if you look back now, um, when you were at the, uh, at the, the kind of peak weight there, um, looking around the corner, as you said, some, some potential health issues, and also the challenge of finding your way back into the world from into a corporate perspective out of um, elite sports. Was there a tipping point um, that, that created the change or did you get some advice? What was the what was that moment where the, where the light bulb went off and said? Yeah, yeah. It was, it was 100% it was a light bulb moment. So I, um, so obviously, yeah, I, I, saw, I saw that at the time I was, I was sort of only a couple of years of retirement from rugby and I had a few injuries, but I was still pretty strong even though I was kind of weight. And I, I never played rugby league, but the local rugby league team where I grew up on, um, I turned up one day and had a big night and, I'd had a, and I, was, I probably already had seven or eight schooners before the, the first game start. Anyway, they were short about six players and um, and it's just the lowest level rugby league you can play in Australia. Like it's, it's, it wasn't a high, high standard by any means, but... Um, Anyway, so they were going to forfeit and we had this big fundraising day down there and everyone was there and I said, you can't forfeit. Everyone's come down to watch this game if you're short of players. They said, well, we'll get the young kids will turn up on the bus at sort of half time because the under-19s team are playing over here. I said, well, right, so I drummed up a few of my mates who were in their 30s, 40s and 50s and I said, I'll put the boots on and we, we played this game of rugby league. I, I know the first half didn't go well when it was just all the old blokes, but when the young kids came on, we went a bit better and I you know, I played the game and, yeah, I did reasonably okay for someone who was so overweight and fat, but they took a photo and said how good it was and they sent it to me and they sent me this photo of me playing for the local league team and it was just terrific, you know. The, some of my football photos aren't very, aren't very flattering anyway, but this was like, this was huge. This was like, I looked like, this, the triple extra large jersey looked like a tattoo. Um, my face was you know, three times wider than my, my skull. It was just, yeah, and I went, that's just, you know, that's not a good look, but more importantly, if that's what I'm like at 35, how am I going to look at, you know, 45? And, you know, there's not many 150, 160 kilos people running around in later life. So I, I thought it was time to make, do something about it. Congratulations on that change and uh, thanks for sharing that with us. Um, I'm just going to head back to your rugby career for the next couple of questions. Uh, you played alongside and you played against some of the greats of rugby union. Did anybody really stand out that you tried to model either behaviours or traits on? Um, and I'd love to hear how you took advantage of working alongside and uh, playing against some of the, the greats of rugby union uh, to enhance your own performance. Oh, look, there's plenty of people I tried to emulate and copy their behaviours and some were ones I shouldn't have and some were some that were good, you know. <laughs> some of the off-field people I copied wasn't the best for my career, but I had a lot of fun with them. But look, I think um, there wasn't really one. I think I took bits and pieces from everyone. I think I think coming into a Wallaby squad in 2003 and and just seeing the professionalism and and the uh, and the work ethic for someone like a George Gregan was, was definitely was uh, something that 
helped me change the way I played and the way I did things. You know, he was such a professional and looked after his body so well and was so specific on detail and getting things right, you know, and training to get something right so on the game it would happen. Um, it wasn't about wasting time and, and doing things that wouldn't make you better. Um, albeit George, was, he loved a, loved a game of touch, having fun, but he, he was really that way. Uh, that professionalism of George Gregan was one that I, that I tried to emulate um, there are so many others to, 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 to name people out it'd be hard but you know um, someone who I, I you know another one in that, in that reign that I was just in awe of was someone like a Brad Thorne uh, he's, he's won everything he's played in everything you know he played at 41 in the local uh, NRC comp in, in Australia although he might have been a no flashy no frills football a lot of people just wouldn't have seen that but I think he's got to go down as one of the is one of the greatest sort of players who sort of gone from league to union and, and, and the way he sort of did that workmanlike effort and attention to detail. He was one that I was really impressed with. You know, then you got younger blokes like David Pocock, uh, the ultimate professional, you know, did the things on and off the pitch, which was just, um, which were pretty incredible. And you, and you look at his sort of off-field things, he sort of, I'll get the word right, ultralistic sort of lifestyle, helping others and doing stuff was pretty impressive. I, you know, and there's guys like that. There's so many. There's so many. And, um, you know, and then blokes like Kobus Fasaki from purely a scrummaging point of view at Tighthead Prop, who was just incredible, like what he could do, you know, scrummaging-wise. And um, I could go on and just name players who, who were professional and, and were great. And then, you know, guys who were – had, and then also guys who had the ability to switch on and switch off and had fun. I think a big part of my rugby, I forget, is I really enjoyed it. You know, a lot of people recall me being part of a team as always with a smile on my face a lot of the time and just enthusiasm, you know, and that's what I had. Like, I I guess I was like the happy brown Labrador who, who had a bit of uh, rot wheeler in him, I guess, but when he got a bit cranky. <laughs> we have a look at the focus on business there and people looking to to aspire, not only in business, but just to try and get those extra yards, whether it be in their career or in, in their life. Um, it's really important, I think, at this time to to where where people can give advice and and we can support the community and and, and people who are looking to grow. Because it's been a, as you mentioned at the beginning of the show, um, it's been a really tough time for people across the world with lockdowns and being away from family and uh, people who started organisations and they've all been locked down, or people who've had flourishing businesses and uh, and they've come up against real challenges with the the state of play in the world at the moment. What would be the one or two traits or characteristics that you would encourage everybody to learn and learn and develop to make them more resilient? That's a really good question. It's a really hard question too. I guess someone once told me what, what other people think of me is none of my business, you know, and, and I'll judge myself on my behavior and my actions, not on other people's thoughts, you know, because the reality is you can't make everyone happy. Um, that's the reality of life and you just got to do, you know, the right thing for you and your family, and and, and the right thing, you know. You got, you know, and the, well, what is the right thing? Well, that's for everyone to work out for themselves. But um, I think if if you're constantly worrying about what other people think, uh, life's going to be very difficult. So I think that's important. And I think it's just in professional sport. I think it's you know, it's a, it, we always say, plan the work, work the plan. It's 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 having a plan of what you're going to do, having that consistent thing, and then going out and doing it on a daily basis. Like the reality is the only spot that we live in is right this second. 
that is just a second and that's what you have to do in sport sport teaches you you cannot worry about the last five minutes you cannot worry about the next five minutes because all you can control is this minute this pass this kick this scrum that's all you've got and and that's all you've got in life like this absolute this moment and so you've got to break it down and you've just got to give the daily actions you need to get where you want to go whatever that is you've just got to do it on a daily basis or a weekly basis whatever it is but you have to do those actions to get where you want to go it's, it's like anything in life, your golf handicap, your weight, your, your physique, whatever. That's just a reflection of what you've done for the last six months or six days. That's all it is. It's not actually – it doesn't define you. It's, that's all, it's, it's, just a, it's just a scoreboard. That's all the fuck it is. There's nothing else. So you have to do – how many people say about losing weight, doing weight? Mate, the only way to lose weight – and look, I, I, people, dietitians are going to have a go at me, but you've got to eat less than you, you spend. Like it's, 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 a, it's calorie deficit. That's how you lose weight. That's, it's, it's that simple. That's how you lose weight, and that's why you've got to do it. And if you, if, if you don't be really specific and actually plan your meals, eat the, the amount you want to eat and really prepare, it's very difficult to do, and it's the same with everything. You know, you, you've just got to um, do the daily actions to get where you want to go, and um, I think that sport taught me really well. Um, yeah, you've, and I'm I'm not dismissing you've got to work working smarter or harder. I, I get all that, and that's all great. And, and I guess that's assumed knowledge. And you, you know, I'm not going to tell anyone how they how they you know what plan they need to do to get where they want to go. But if you know what you got to do, you just got to fucking go and do it. That's all it is. And 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 the reason why people don't a lot of people don't succeed, I think, is because either they're scared of failing or they're scared of success and they're not prepared to do the daily things to get where they want to go. Maybe that's a bit critical. Maybe that's a really simplistic view, but that's what I see. And I and, and not just see, I see in myself. I've seen it myself over time that that's what happens to me when I'm not doing, you know, not doing the daily things. I, I don't get the results. If I do the daily actions or whatever that is, I, I get the results of what I want to do. Uh, and, and not always good. Like you still got life, right? Life's still, life's still a bit of a, a, a lottery. You know, you still get bad breaks. You still hit a great tee shot and it goes behind a tree. That still happens. You still get a bad bounce. You still hit ten great putts in a round and none of them go in. And some days you hit bad putts and they go in. That's life. But you can't control that. So why would you even worry about? It? Sounds like you've been watching my uh, most recent rounds of golf, Matt. No, I love I love my golf. I I I got a bit fanatical with golf in the on that two thousand and three, the first trip I had with the Wallabies to in the Tri Nations where I didn't play a test, and uh, I've been a a golf junkie ever since. And uh, not particularly good, but I uh, just love it. Love the analogies, and it's a great game. It, you can just play forever, and. Um, yeah, uh, it's a it's, it's a good analogy for life. I think it's a great game for people to play. Yeah, it's a cracker. I'm going to go back to this field goal just to get this across. When I said I was interviewing Matt Dunning on the on the uh, Resilience podcast, I said you've got to ask him about the field goal. You've got to ask him about the field goal. And I was thinking, well, how can I relate that to uh, to resilience? And I thought, well, it's all about adaptability and, and changing and uh, and taking your chance. Talk me through the famous uh, the famous Matt Dunning field goal. Yeah, so um, it was quite interesting. So I was actually having a, not a bad season. We, we, we you know, and the team was going well. We were we were. You know, we we had to win the last game with a bonus point of the Super Rugby season, uh, which means you said to score four tries and win. If we did that, we'd make the semi final first time in a while from memory, and it was you know we were, it was a big game, and they were playing the Chiefs, who were expected to beat at home that they they weren't having the best year, so it was very doable. Um, if we did it, the Brumbies would miss out in the semis, which were, which was pretty uh, it was a big deal then because the Brumbies was by far the best Australian side in those early days when we played, and you know we. 
the game was going along. I think we were up by a few points and with about, two, you know, we are up by about five or six points with 12 minutes to go. We'd scored two tries. Um, I'd played 68 minutes of football in those days. At least it probably often played 80. So 68 minutes of football means I'm, uh, I'm very tired, buggered, if you put it the right way. And, uh, Anyway, that that in that, that period of rugby when they played advantage, everyone took a drop goal and just played the advantage. Missed a drop goal, take the penalty, gave a touch. Everyone was doing that. It was just like George Gregan did it every time he could. You just do a drop goal with a penalty, gave a touch or whatever, take the shot a goal. Anyway, I was r- right behind the ruck. There was 30 bodies, including the referee in front of me, so I was out the back having a rest. Chris Whitaker went to pass it to someone. A hand came through the ruck and knocked it straight backwards. I got the ball... Did nothing on, kicked the drop goal and just hit it super sweet. Like I wasn't trying to miss, but I, I wasn't. It was just a reaction, and uh, I chased the ball because I thought, oh shit, this is going to go over, and it went straight between the black dot from I don't know thirty odd meters out, whatever it was, and um, yeah, sort of. Uh, we didn't end up getting the four tries and didn't make the semi final, and uh, you know the way stories go, you got a label on something, so they uh, they put it on my drop goal, and the next morning, you know, obviously we're having a bit of a drink because the season was over. For, we, we didn't make the semi-finals on that basis. And uh, I had all these text messages from people saying, Are you okay? You all right? And I'm going, I'm all right. Anyway, I got the paper that morning and uh, uh, I looked at the paper and for some reason looked at the front page first and someone goes, turn that paper around. I turned the paper around and it said, dumb and dunning on the back page of the Telegraph <laughs> uh, after that drop goal. So that was, that was nice. And yeah, so the next week went on and... Uh, a few things happened that week at Silly Sunday and Mad Monday and it became Dumb and Dunning Part 2 on the next paper, but that's for another time. <laughs> I'm sure we'll have another chat at another time and hear more about that. That's a great story and it's. Uh, I'm sure you've got plenty of uh, plenty of banter from people in the sheds about that for a, for a long time and the fact it keeps coming up shows it was the, the right thing at the right time, mate. Um, just finally, um, the, the final question um, I'm going to be asking all guests. In a couple of sentences, how do you define resilience? Hmm. Yeah, really good question. Uh, I've sort of said a lot about it, but how do you do it really sharply? Well, resilience, resilience is about through all the setbacks, getting up and keep going. You know, it's it's that that quote that everyone sees from the Rocky movie that's uh, that, that gets so many runs, everyone finds it's corny and probably hates it, but it's uh, it's about getting up and and keep moving forward. You know, it's the best way of defining it. I used to watch that before I play often. You know, life's about that and. That's about you. Just got to resilience is sticking to what you want and how you want to do it, regardless of the outcome, and 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 keep working hard. You, you reassess and you do stuff, but it's not giving up, and it's 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 knowing who you are and believing in what you're doing, and and getting up through setback. And I think there's so many stories about that in so many successful people that you know it is, and it's hard. It's really hard resilient because you know you got to go through a lot of pain. It's sometimes easier just not not trying, isn't it? So, but if you want to succeed, you got to you got to try your hardest. And sometimes when you try your hardest, you get you, you make mistakes and you look silly. But uh, if you want to succeed and you want to be you want to be happy ultimately, whatever happy is, you want to be content, whatever that is, you need to keep uh, moving forward. I reckon. What an awesome response. Matt Dunning, thank you very much for being on the first Building Resilience podcast. There's been some amazing insights in there. Great to hear all about your career, um, all of the setbacks, the obstacles, the way you've overcome them, the way you've looked into other people's skills and trades and learned from them. I mean, some great stories mixed in there. So thank you very much. Congratulations on a, an amazing 
career inside rugby. Congratulations on an amazing rugby union career and good luck with whatever the future holds. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you. No problems at all now. Thanks for listening to the Building Resilience podcast. Make sure you hit subscribe or follow wherever you listen so you don't miss future episodes. Thank you to our guest today, Matt Dunning. We really appreciate your time. Thanks to our sponsor, Securo. Securo enables fearless innovation through world-class resilience. Securo, trust tomorrow. If you'd like to understand more around Securo, you can head to securo.io.